Hello, and welcome to this ICE Tech Talks podcast. I'm James Crummy, the Knowledge Research Lead at the ICE. Today, as part of our State of the Nation activities, we are discussing the energy sector and how engineers can drive a whole life approach to offshore and onshore wind, as well as solar infrastructure. Our guest today, who will be sharing their thoughts and insights, is Gareth McKillen, civil engineer at SSE Renewables. Gareth is a chartered civil engineer working in the offshore civil engineering team and has five years experience working on a large variety of infrastructure projects for both the public and private sectors. Gareth, welcome and hello. Hi James, how are you? Thanks for having me. No problem. So to kick off, how are engineers and asset owners approaching the decommission and refurbishment of wind infrastructure and I guess what's the scale of the challenge ahead for the industry? The reality is when it comes to refurbishment, quite often the civil asset itself is not the limiting factor. Um, Quite often we're all aware that our concrete is going to be designed for a minimum design life of 50 years. Whereas the turbine that's fixed to our concrete base perhaps only has a lifespan of 25 to 35 years. So in terms of refurbishment of, of particularly civil offshore assets that I would be involved in, there's not a tremendous amount we can directly do as an as an industry to improve that. What we can do, I think, is drive the investment and you know the companies and the businesses that we work or consult for to really look at that and ensure that the parts that they're putting into those assets are as refurbishable as possible. So the idea behind that is we we want to prolong getting to decommissioning as much as possible. If you put in good parts into your assets to start off with or parts that are easily and safely refurbishable, you don't need to decommission them as quickly. Hmm. I think then the second part of that sort of question or trail of thought is then once we get to decommissioning, whether that is 25, 35, or hopefully into the future 45 years um, time, what we need to do is try and limit the amount of material we're sending to landfill. That's the first part of the decommissioning. The other thing we need to think of, and I think it's something we're all aware of now, and as an industry we need to consider under CDM, is how do we safely decommission our assets? It's something that we, I think, as a civil engineering industry as a whole, need to really have at the forefront of our mind from the start. We need to think, how can we safely get these assets off the seabed, back onto land, and what can we do with them then Mm. once they're decommissioned? I assume technology and a lot of those innovations we want to drive in industry are going to be a big part of that. And I guess how, yeah, I guess what role or hope is there around using technology to understand performance, to you know help expand and extend those lives? I guess what what are your hopes and what are you seeing in the industry around this uh, at the moment? It's been really encouraging to see how consultancy and developers and contractors are really now looking to embrace. Um, technology and innovation in that as a whole. We would do in the civils team a lot of route delineation. So getting your cable from the bottom of an offshore asset, a wind turbine or an offshore substation onto landfall, Mm. and then from that landfall into your grid connection. So through a series of generally underground cables. And that obviously is quite a long linear asset, which will encounter a lot of different obstacles, let's say, along the way. Yeah. Traditionally, that would have been done by a desk study by consultancy who would be looking at historic maps and current mapping and, and trying to delineate those routes by hand. 
But working with a software development partner in SSE, we have actually started to do that using um, what's called machine learning. So what you do is you've got GIS, Geographical Information System, layers of all of the different historic land uses to flag up things like archaeology, yep. um, road corridors, railway routes, buildings, industry sites. Um, you load that all into this software and then you literally pick points. So you say, I would like you to delineate me routes based on various scored parameters mm. between point A to B and point B to C. And what that does is it assesses millions of different options and maybe comes up with six or eight possible viable routes for us to consider. And what that is doing is it's considering far more options at the outset than we could ever or consultants could ever have considered. So there's things like that. I'm involved in the construction of operation and maintenance facilities for our wind turbines. So where you've got operatives coming in and they've got all of their kit and they then board the vessels and, and go out offshore. And what we've started doing with them is we've actually modeled the building in virtual reality because I, I'm not an operative. Um, I don't know exactly what they need and, and what can make their life easier, but also more importantly, safer. Yeah. So we have our um, offshore technicians coming into a room, putting on a, a virtual reality headset, and all of a sudden they're immersed in the OMF facility that we intend to build for them. They're able to highlight problems long before we've ever built it. And we're able to then fix those problems working with our architects and our M&E contractors before we build the facility. So what that's doing is it's saving us money, but it's also making the facility an awful lot safer. They're able to identify things that make them uncomfortable um, and we can fix them before we go forward. Great. And, and I guess, looking at what, what do you see the offshore wind industry's contribution to the energy market being, I guess, over the next couple of decades? And how do you see the UK, Ireland energy market developing over that time as well? I think I'd be... You know, I obviously work in offshore wind um, and I suppose wind generation in general. It's not the solution. You know, it's not going to solve our problems, but I think it is part um, and probably quite a big part of the solution. If you consider, you know, what the output is to try and feed the needs of the nation. So in terms of giving them enough energy to meet their needs for a whole variety of different things, consider that as a meal. Mm. How we're going to meet that need or feed the nation through a meal is not going to be a traditional meat and two veg in one plate. What it needs to be is like a tapas meal. So a tapas meal is where you've got lots of different types of dish mm. and through eating off those different types of dish throughout the meal, you're able to get your sustenance. So, you know, big parts of that meal and different dishes could be things like your, as I say, your nuclear, or maybe it's your hydrogen or your, you know, the reality is at the moment, gas is a big one. You've got your wind generation, but you've also got smaller little side dishes like you know, pump storage, um, through flow hydro from your rivers, maybe perhaps a bit of tidal in the future. And dear knows what other types of generation we're going to come up with over the, the next few decades. Um, and I think the other thing that ties well with that tapas analogy is Generally, a tapas meal is shared. Yeah, We're getting better, certainly between Ireland and the UK in terms of the interconnectors and sharing our electricity. But I think if you were to fast forward a couple of decades, it will be almost an entire Northern Europe approach. So what we need to be doing is sharing electricity from areas where there's a surplus at one time to where there's a deficit at the other and vice versa. I guess the one we didn't talk 
too much about there from the tap at is the solar infrastructure and i guess how how can engineers sort of impact you know a more whole life approach life approach and a better integration of solar infrastructure you know into the network into that mix yeah i, I don't profess to be an expert on solar um personally i don't feel like solar is going to be a huge part of the solution and i think predominantly the reason for that will be the land take so you obviously need to take huge amounts of land to set these solar wind farms out. Um, I don't think in isolation it's it's a runner. That's just my own personal opinion. What I do think um, solar could be or should be used for is, is what I would call micro-generation. So little bits of at-source generation. If you're specifying or you're designing a new car park, well, that car park probably needs streetlights. Well, the onus is on us as civil engineers to be recommending to our clients that well, why would you not consider putting solar panels on top of those streetlights? Or why would you not consider putting a little solar panel adjacent to the car charging port? Um, and whilst it's, it's not going to contribute huge amounts in that individual case to the grid, what it is doing, if you do this across the board, um, it reduces the demand on the grid network itself. Do you think civil engineers are thinking enough about you know the circular approach to to energy infrastructure or i guess are our engineers thinking too short term as we try and roll out more and more renewable energy so i think we weren't probably historically thinking about it as much as we should but i would hasten to add i don't think any industry was thinking tremendously about that side of things, you know, the sustainability, the the whole life use of a product. But I think what's really encouraging to see is the large developers and people involved in building of these assets, both offshore, onshore, and in the renewable sector in general, are really starting to put that at the forefront um, of what they're doing. So, you know, without blowing the, the SSE trumpet too hard today, um, you know, SSE have got things like uh, the ENDS app, which is their net zero acceleration plan, which is where over the next five years, they're investing 18 billion pounds in, you know, improving the whole life approach to things. And as part of that, then creating offshore and onshore um, renewable energy assets. And how does that impact me, I suppose, in my day-to-day -day life? Well, as somebody that works for them, I certainly feel like this is something that's important to renewable energy developers in general and not to be afraid to take time to consider a circular approach so to put the time into not just specifying the material straight out of the book but thinking about what can be done with it down the line mm. it's really interesting to see how investment across the board is being put to good use there's companies and sort of bodies being set up um, things like suswind which are set up by the, the UK Composites, um, either association or agency, can't remember. But what they're looking at is you've got these wind turbine blades, which are a big part of the material in our asset. And historically, they would have entirely been put to landfill because there was no circular use for them once you decommissioned. Um, they're looking at you know using those fibres and, and re purposing them into different shapes and sizes. So perhaps they become floorboards in a new high-rise office block or, or wall panels in your house. 
Um, so there's things like that that are going on that are they're really encouraging. And, and you can see the large developers putting their money behind bodies like Suswind to sort of help develop that. Um, another interesting one, sort of closer to home, I, I actually went to Queen's University Belfast myself, and they're sort of undertaking a research project at the moment where they're looking at using the entire wind turbine blade um, cut into sections then to build little bridges. Um, where, where I live in Belfast, there's a really nice sort of National Trust wildlife reserve right beside it. And what that really is, is a lot of little footbridges taking you across little streams and wetland areas. And historically, they're made of timber. They need to be replaced probably every 10 to 15 years, um, which is not a tremendously sustainable practice. So, so what Queens are trying to do with this research project in conjunction with a couple of other bodies is find ways of reducing that. So can we use wind turbine blades as sort of the main structural member in these little footbridges? Um, and that's doing two things. It's hopefully going to solve that problem, but it also is promoting their use down the line as a structural member. So the research that's going in to sort of understand the properties that these blades have after 25 years of spinning around in a circle is being used then to promote and develop their use and incorporation into other types of asset or structure going forward. So just to give you a stat on that, um, I think recently they were able to find that one of these old wind turbine blades were able to take or was able to take a load of 33 tons with a nine mil deflection. So that's an amazing structural performance from an asset that is 25 years old. And another area which could be very important for the future around energy storage, say pump storage. Mm -hmm. I guess what um, role or hope do you think this will have for, I guess, we're probably thinking solar and wind-based energy production future. And I guess what, how important will it be is that mix um, to making you know, wind and solar, I guess, have a much bigger and important role across the network? Yeah. I think just taking storage generally, we need storage, as you rightly say, to smooth out the peaks and troughs in supply created by things like wind and solar. So if the wind isn't blowing, we're not generating. But equally, sometimes the wind is blowing, but the demand isn't there. So currently what, that, what, what happens to a lot of that electricity is it's just wasted. So who wouldn't want the big battery to store your additional store, your additional power on until the grid needs it. So yeah, certainly I'm on board with storage. Um, I'm probably particularly invested in pump storage um, as I'll be completely open, honest and transparent. I have probably a, an unconscious bias in there about pump storage being the son of a dams and reservoirs engineer. But when you look at the stats, and I don't want to get too, too much into the, the, the stats of different types of storage, I think where pump storage really comes up trumps is in its efficiency. So I, I think it's around about 85% efficient in terms of the electricity that you put in versus the electricity that you get out at the end of the storage mm. process. And when you compare that to some other types of storage, that is a lot higher. Certainly in SSE renewables, it's something that we really are investing in. Um, we've got a, a number of different pump storage projects around the UK going on currently. Our big one is probably, you may have heard of it, Corey Glass up yes. in the Northwest of Scotland. So the, the plan there is to build um, possibly the biggest dam in Britain, um, sort of over 90 meters high, um, and then use that to store a lot of the electricity that we're generating with our offshore assets 
um, as I say, at times where we've got more energy than the grid needs. Um, so there's a really good example of how certainly SSE see pump storage as a really important part um, of the future. And, you know, they're doing crazy things up there, um, investing huge amounts of money into development expenditure for ground investigation, where they are literally digging tunnels. They're, they're not just doing boreholes, they are almost digging the tunnels that are required to see how the tunnel performs when they dig it. Um, so yeah, it's, I certainly see pump storage as a big thing, but I think don't lose that message in the fact that we need storage in general in yeah. a whole variety of different, it's, it's back to this diversity thing. You want diversity of supply and generation, but I think you also probably want diversity of storage. And uh, I guess in your head, so if you sort of had the power, I guess what one change would you like to see in the coming years, you know, to drive greater resilience? And I think from what we talked about adaptability as well, you know, in the way we, um, you know, generate electricity and the network uh, at the moment. I think my answer to this question isn't dissimilar to all um, professionals working in the energy industry currently in the UK and Ireland. The answer in short is grid reinforcement. Um, and we need grid reinforcement for, for two reasons. The first reason is if we are to meet the, the sort of the government targets for net zero um, coming up over the next couple of decades, we basically need to probably double um, the amount of electricity that we have in our grid because we're obviously going to, we're going to change our sources of power. That requires more electricity to transmit that power effectively, which means you need a stronger grid. So the grid that currently is just about meeting our electricity needs needs all of a sudden over the next couple of years or decades to transmit at least twice that amount of electricity. That's the first reason. The, the other, as somebody who works in, in wind generation, quite often where you generate wind power is in remote windy places, whether that is up the top of a hill in the back end of nowhere or offshore. And those places are generally not close to the sort of centers of urbanization around the UK. Um, and so we need to be able to get that suddenly really bolstered amount of energy from that remote location to where it needs to be for industry and people's houses and, and cities and large areas of development. So there's a lot of reinforcement that needs to be done to the grid to get that electricity to where it needs to be going. Um, I'm involved in a large offshore wind farm to the south of Dublin. And at the moment, we're going to have our asset built before the grid reinforcement that's required will be caught up. Mm. So we are going to have the ability possibly to generate 800 megawatts, but actually the grid might only take 400 megawatts. And so we're really hoping that, you know, the powers to be can get their act together in time to get that grid up and running so that it can take our full um, generation potential. Exactly. So, yeah, it is something, it's not just a pie in the sky thing. It's something that we really see on all of our, you know, we've professionals in SSA and all the developers do whose job it solely is, is to interface with the grid suppliers and, and the people who own the grid network in our particular area and make sure they're keeping up with our requirements. And for everything you described, and I think that, you know, that, focus that the industry you know will need and the network and the grid will need in the coming years i guess you know do you think engineers currently considering careers you know should consider a career you know in renewable energy and i guess you know what what can be done to you know recommend promote 
careers and I guess supply the many engineers who are going to be needed to to deliver this? I don't think that it's promoted enough currently a career in renewable energy. Certainly it may have changed in the last five or six years since I left university, but it wasn't something that I was overly aware of. And I only really found out about the job that I now have through online adverts um, and looking at it and kind of going, yes, yeah, maybe something that's that's new and progressive and something that everybody seems to be talking about in the world. Maybe I should um, get into that. And I think we're all aware that net zero is a huge thing in, yeah. in the UK and the world at the moment. But what I don't think people realize is the really important role that civil engineers have to play in that. Because the entire infrastructure is, is overseen generally by civil engineers with input then from mechanical and electrical. So I think that's something that we need to promote as an industry. Um, I think there's two ways that we need to do that. As I say, I think the first thing is going into schools, promoting it, going into universities and saying, guys, there's all these traditional types of civil engineering and they may be for you and you might find them enjoyable and that's absolutely fine. But there's also these new um, sectors that you can get involved in um, and that you can find a really rewarding and enjoyable um, career in. So the first thing, as I say, is promotion. But I think the other thing that we need to be willing to do as a sector is support transition. So um, I was very honest when I went for my interview in SSE and I said, I don't know anything about renewable energy, but I'm young, I'm a chartered civil engineer, I'm enthusiastic, I know this is a really good thing to get into, I will learn. Um, and I must admit, I couldn't speak highly enough of how I've been treated um, in, in SSE in terms of being mentored and supported in transitioning into this industry. Um, one in three of our SSE renewable employees have transitioned from high carbon industry backgrounds. So you're getting people that have got all these skills of being involved in really high capex, intricate, progressive, busy projects who are then using that skill and knowledge and experience to now peddle the green energy um, market and movement within renewables and civil engineering in general. Yeah, no, I think it's a very important thing to sort of, I guess, come to a close on around that, that actually we're seeing it a lot now around one, that diversity of skills that we're going to need, the different backgrounds of people in, that kind of bring to, to do this transition. Um, and it's something, you know, I think we've seen across different things at the IT at the moment that people are, you know, need to think about you know, what they can bring to different sectors. You know, I think the, the years of us working 40 years in the same yeah. same job, working in the same sector is probably not going to be the same because all the different sectors are changing so much and have changed over the last 20 years, uh, for sure. Yeah, no, couldn't agree more. Well, that's all we have time for today. So thank you to Gareth for joining us and for sharing all your thoughts and insights and experiences. Uh, and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>